This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. negative belief about uncertainty, which then creates this cycle that affects your thoughts, your feelings, and your behavior, right? So there's environment, thoughts, feelings, and behavior. And whenever there's an input into sort of any one of those things, then everything else gets affected. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll discuss challenges in the Canadian healthcare sector. We'll learn about COVID-19 vaccines. We'll explore the connection between sex and anxiety. And lastly, we'll find out about the intolerance of uncertainty. But first, a little bit of business. Jack Nathan Health offers Canadians convenient care with 74 multidisciplinary clinics located within Walmart stores. The largest ever Jack Nathan Health Medical Centre is now open in Vaughan, Ontario at 8300 Highway 27. The new 8300 square foot clinic offers integrated services for the whole family, including family medicine, physiotherapy and chiropractic, chronic pain management, massage, and a registered dietitian. There's also an on-site Dynacare blood laboratory plus same-day referrals, walk-in appointments, and a new annual health assessment option. Jack Nathan Health is a one-stop shop for proactive health management. For more information, visit jacknathanhealth.com. George Bearcat co-founded Jack Nathan Health in 2006, where he cultivated the company from a lean startup to a leader in Canadian healthcare, servicing over 2 million patients across Canada. George has helped shape a new healthcare format by improving access to quality primary care in state-of-the-art medical clinics in retail environments across the country. Today, George is an authority in healthcare and in business and has traveled extensively nationally and internationally, building and sustaining important global relationships and partnerships. And he's also a regular guest on the show. Welcome back, sir. How are you? I'm great, Jamie. Thank you for having me. I miss you guys. It's long overdue. And boy, we have a ton of information to share and what has transpired at Jack Nathan Health and what we're working on. So Fantastic. Let's set the table and let's sort of frame our discussion. You know, obviously... And we're going to talk about healthcare today and the state of the nation as it comes to healthcare. You know, obviously we could chat at length about COVID, but I actually don't want to do that today. I kind of want to talk about the challenges that we face within the industry and as patients. And you can speak to the challenges that the practitioners also suffer in terms of the Canadian healthcare industry and what's going on. So what are some of the challenges that the industry is facing? Oh, what a great question. Where to begin, Jamie? Where to begin? Let's start at the most prevalent problem, and that's the aging population and how we actually deal with that systematically where we're providing more efficiencies and services and connectivity to our loved ones. We've got technology has just evolved to a point in healthcare where, you know, not without challenges, COVID-19 has created entirely new ecosystems in telemedicine, telehealth, biometrics, all of it is to date on singular platforms, disjointed, not connected to the healthcare systems or to long-term care facilities or the aged population. You look at, you know, there's, there's greater calls now for health equity, which substantially means how do we join those records, connect those conversations, and provide more value to the patient on the front end. And of course, when you 
put it all together, what has that done for the governments? It's increased costs in spending. Now, there are several touch points, notwithstanding a physical visit, a telemedicine visit, and literally anything that you could possibly imagine that the government has agreed to cover now that they understand that people want to stay home and want to consume their health care from the comfort of their home. Yeah. And I guess, you know, with the aging population, you know, I I think it's almost a truism that, you know, as we get older, we just have a greater need for health care. Right. You know, like suppose it's unspoken, but, you know, we really need to discuss it. Canadians, we are an aging population. And without immigration, it's happening more rapidly, right? Like the boomer slash Zoomer population is only getting older. And, you know, I'm Gen X, but even at my age, I can see a greater need for healthcare. Yeah, no, well said. We all can. And, you know, I'm Gen X as well. At the same token, when we look at healthcare and what I just mentioned earlier, it's all of that. What does it mean? Yeah. And how do we kind of put a rope around it all so that, there's not just transparency, there's the ability to pick and choose healthcare on demand at your pace and what you will require at that moment. And that could mean the littlest items such as voice translation software to connect with a physician, document translation software. It could mean, how do I look at performing a health risk assessment to understand my next steps? Or even simpler, how do I schedule an appointment with a practitioner, whether it be online or in-clinic or a specialist. And at this point, there are various initiatives that do that individually. It's what does it all mean as a consumer and how does the consumer now get to pick and choose consumption at their rate? Yeah. Like what I'm hearing from you is, is that, you know, the people used to be okay with going to their doctor and waiting in the office and people used to be okay, perhaps going into a clinic and understanding that it isn't their family physician, but you know, it's somebody who might be able to see them on an off hour uh, when their doctor isn't available. But I think COVID and the technology has created a whole new set of expectations that the industry is going to be forced to meet or it's going to look as though we're falling behind. Right. And on the surface, it looks like we're moving ahead quite rapidly. Right. However, it's the appliance has always existed into connecting with an individual or a loved one vis-a-vis video conferencing. Yeah. Now we're connecting with physicians. Again, what does it all mean? How is it that information disseminated so that the patient can follow up with next steps for themselves, for a family member? for a loved one. And more importantly, what can they do, the individual patient consumer, to better their healthy outcomes? And that could mean, how do I pick out a device that's going to track a loved one at home through remote patient monitoring? And how does that information feed back up into my health ecosystem? Before we jump ahead to the patients, let's look at the practitioners for a moment too, right? Because they live in that environment. They're expected to do their work within the framework that exists. So, you know, what are the challenges that the practitioners, the doctors, the nurses, and, and all the all the others are facing in terms yeah, of the current and, system? No, and that's a great question, and they're facing those same challenges. So I'll give you an example today. We have a clinic that can't seem to get a, a robust Internet feed into one of our locations, therefore sacrificing the potential for them to do telemedicine within the clinic. Right. We have to rectify that simple problem by getting in a larger pipe or some sort of internet transition or signal that can power up what they would require just from the front end alone. Now, practitioners today are not only faced with how do we receive that technology, utilize it, and catalog it 
so that it's part of their patient record and patient journey, and how does the patient see that interaction on their some sort of an app. But I think more importantly is how do physicians nationally share that information so that it's available for other physicians to look at, understand their patient, and more importantly, disseminate that information back to their patient with a more comprehensive look at their record. Right. When you're going to telemedicine, and this has happened a lot, the technology's great. The largest number of Canadians are utilizing telemedicine today, but more times than not, they're actually being seen by a physician that isn't their family physician or someone that doesn't recognize them or know them for the speed of execution. It's usually a different physician every time that will come on and coordinate that healthcare interaction and that doesn't get added to their health record anywhere. So right. what does it mean from there? And that problem, the sort of the broken record, right? <laughs> it's a nice way of, of putting it, right? Because yep. the records are broken if they're incomplete. That can lead to health mismanagement, I would think, right? Like if you don't know the full picture of the patient that you're treating, maybe there's a mistake that's made or maybe there's something that's overlooked or maybe there's something that's already been tried that hasn't been reflected in the records that, that are before you, which means you're wasting efforts or duplicating efforts to no avail, right? Well, you're absolutely correct. But more importantly, if those interactions were all coordinated and recorded, then algorithms could be created for the patient and recommendations by the doctor understanding and basing it on the past information that could essentially provide the patient with options to consume healthcare as they see fit. But currently today when you have, you know, if you've seen four or five doctors in the year and three by telemedicine and and two in person, odds are that none of those interactions have been documented succinctly. Therefore, how can a patient actually utilize that information or view it in a clear, concise fashion so that they can now have options on how to consume healthcare and how to consume the ability to generate better outcomes and live their best life. I would think from a patient perspective, it would be frustrating and perhaps, you know, it would, you might develop a lack of faith in the system itself. You know, it used to be, you knew your doctor, you go to your doctor, your doctor has the record there. That's where the records exist, right? You know, if we're using the technology, as, as you say, and it's possible that you're not seeing the same doctor, you know, on consecutive visits, I would want to have the peace of mind of understanding that even though it isn't the same doctor, at least my records are in front of that doctor so that I myself am not responsible for explaining what happened at my last visit, you know? Yes, correct. Absolutely. And if you don't have all of that information comprised and recorded, how is the patient going to understand through technology, which is ultimately why we created these contact points, of what their next step should be? And again, it creates a larger reactive healthcare program. And what we want to do is we want to get everybody proactive on how to live their best life. Right. And I think you touched upon it earlier. You know, from a patient's perspective, it could be aggravating just setting up an appointment or getting a referral to a specialist and then having the specialist, you know, not be aware of the entire picture. You know, it's the day-to-day stuff that I think the patients really get frustrated the most. And you and I were sort of talking you know, when we weren't on air about, you know, helping family members with what's going on. And, you know, I can speak from experience and in assisting my parents, for example, with their health issues, you know, it can be daunting trying to navigate the entire system. Like it's not user friendly. It just isn't. Well, it isn't user friendly because there are no, it's not really connected. And I think that what we have to be mindful of and the way and the path to check Nathan Health 
is moving in, it really revolves around two words, patient first. Mm-hmm. And everything we do right now and everything that we're mindful of creating through our new technology platform that we will be launching shortly, you know, we brought on Serge Sinelli. Uh, he's an ex-government regulator for healthcare software as our CTO, our chief technology officer. More importantly, he's been able to put together almost eight years worth of thoughts and, and business plans on how we can reshape the healthcare landscape by putting the patient first. And I think that understanding that if you design and record and place an ecosystem together that empowers the patients and provides information and recommendations to the patients that ultimately are from your physician or from a physician, you can't go wrong. Right. So I know you're working on some big stuff. Is there anything you can share with us as to where the direction is heading and, and how you see some of these problems that we've identified being solved? Well, I'd love to uh, sell some wine before it's time, so to speak, yes, Jamie. <laughs> but <laughs> I think that what I can say is this, is we are going to be looking at the patient first experience from a whole different lens. And traditionally, when you are a patient, what you do is you are viewing information and health information. And we all can Google what could be wrong with us potentially or where to find a physician or a walk-in clinic. And that is literally our ability to view information. By looking at changing the conversation to patient first, what we want to do is we want the patient to be able to consume healthcare at their pace. And what that means is not just creating an informative portal, but a usable one. Creating a shop-like type atmosphere where we'll have different front-end applications and tools which could provide not just transparency, but information to that patient. Imagine being able to do a health risk assessment which would lead to a product offering or service offering placement directly after. Imagine having an entire shopping cart full of health items at your fingertips and what you could provide to a loved one. You need a walker, you need bandages, you know, you need vitamins and all that is provided to you and could lead from a recommendation engine from your physician or a health risk assessment. Again, as I mentioned earlier, basic translation software, which could provide not just transparency, but you know, logical language interpretation to many people in Canada who English is not their first language. Hmm. Document translation. And most of all, most important, is scheduling and scheduling an appointment with your physician, a physician, a telemedicine physician, or a specialist. And how, essentially, you build out your own ecosystem for health and inviting your own individuals, including family members, friends, relatives, or even foreign physicians, if traveling someday when we get to travel, to participate in viewing and contributing to your conversation about healthcare. Essentially, if I was to compare it, I compare what we're launching to what Apple did to the music industry, where at some point we were not too young to remember the time when the record industry would feed us CDs, and we'd have you know, 10 to 13 songs, not of our choice, but because the artist and the label required us to consume music at that pace. And along came Apple and disseminated the entire music conversation away from the record labels and allowed you to consume music song by song, create playlists, welcome family members. If you look at where healthcare is going to evolve 
and what we're working on to evolve it to that point, it's going to be the complete deconstruction of the patient interpretation and reconstruction of what the patient can consume and use at their pace. That's very empowering. That sounds exciting and fantastic. And I'd love to ask you more about it today, but we're out of time. Will you come back in a few months and fill us in on where this is all going? Jamie, I would love to. And listen, be safe, be well. Remember that through healthcare, we want everybody to live their best life and more to come. I think everyone's going to be very happy with what Jack Nathan Health produces and launches in technology to help you and your families complete that circle of healthcare. Fantastic. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the COVID-19 vaccines on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. <sighs> Losing sleep over a lockdown you can't control? Why not enjoy better sleep on something you can? The Supreme Adjustable Bed by Ultramatic. Customize your back, leg, neck, and lumbar positions with push-button control for relief of back pain, arthritis, and sleep apnea. The Supreme. Take back control of your life. Try Ultramatic's Supreme Adjustable Bed for 100 nights, risk-free. Learn more at ultramatic.ca. Elevate your sleep. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Adar Shah nurtured the rise of Ultramatic, the iconic Canadian brand of adjustable beds and maker of delightful wellness products. He received his bachelor's degree in engineering at Cornell University, graduating magna cum laude in 1999. After graduation, Adarsh joined the Monitor Group, a Cambridge-based strategy consulting company. He worked for them in Toronto, New York, and Mumbai offices on various corporate strategy, market entry, and merger and acquisition projects. He is a proud Torontonian, having lived here for over 30 years, albeit with a few adventurous years in New York. And in between, he is the father of two mischievous girls and caregiver to his happy, healthy, and wine-loving parents. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you? I'm great. Good to be back. We're going to do a little change of today. We're going to talk about the COVID vaccine. And I think the first question is, why are we talking about the COVID vaccine? Yes. Well, I'm, you know, simply a concerned citizen and a businessman. And I get asked these questions about the vaccine by my staff, by my family and customers frequently. You know, I thought I would share my knowledge based on my reading. I think it's helpful. And and I think it's also important, you know, we live in the age of disinformation and there's a lot of conflicting information out there about the vaccines. And I think it's helpful to at least get some good information out there to our listeners. And, you know, even if they don't accept what they're going to hear today, they can use it as the basis for their further research. That's my view of it. Yes, absolutely. And I really had to educate myself because there were quite a few myths out there that needed a busting. But I want to you know, absolutely say that I'm not a medical doctor. Whatever I say is intended for informational purposes only. And please don't substitute it for professional medical advice or diagnosis. Please do get 
proper medical advice from your doctor before taking any action. Agreed. So let's start at the beginning, and that is which vaccines are Canadians getting? Okay, so we are getting the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine as of right now. They've both been approved by Canada, and uh, we are expecting the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine to be approved next week is what we've heard in through the rumor mill. But we've, we've only actually received 70,000 vaccines from Pfizer this week. As you probably all know, there's been a delays in the delivery. But we are expecting 300,000 next week and 400,000 uh, vaccines from Pfizer the week after. And the Moderna shipment apparently is not coming in until the end of February. And then I think there is even some Canadian companies who are working on other vaccines and vaccine delivery systems. So, uh, you know, we're, we are still in the ramping up phase. Yes, we really are. We've, we've vaccinated about a million Canadians so far. And according to Oxford University and the data they've compiled globally, this puts us at, a, at 36th in the world in terms of the percent of the population that we've vaccinated. So not great, as you've probably heard in the news. But look, the good news is that Health Canada projects that we will vaccinate 3 million people by the end of March and another 10 million uh, by the end of the spring. Fantastic. So let's talk about what the vaccine does or doesn't do. Does it inject a virus into our bodies? No, this is a common concern. And both the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines do not contain any live virus or weakened virus or dead virus or any infectious element at all. So there's no way for the vaccine, at least those two vaccines, to give you COVID-19. Okay. They use this technology called the mRNA technology. It's a new way of developing vaccines. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, the best way to understand this technology is they carry a set of instructions to teach your body's immune system how to attack the coronavirus. How is the Pfizer vaccine different from the flu vaccine that you know we're normally used to? So they are actually quite different and cannot be and should not be compared directly. The COVID-19 and influenza both give us the same sort of uh, symptoms and are similar respiratory illnesses, but they're caused by very different viruses. And in fact, the flu virus is really a set of four different viruses which mutate, whereas the COVID-19 virus is just one virus as of right now, and the, and the vaccine is just designed to target that one SARS-type virus. Right, which in and of itself has different mutations to it, but it hasn't entirely mutated into another virus. It's just sort of variants of it. That's right. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, people often wonder, well, hey, look, flu vaccine's not super effective. Apparently, it only has about a 40% efficacy, whereas the COVID-19 vaccines are being touted as having a 90% efficacy or, or effectiveness at beating the virus. And people sometimes are suspicious of that 90% number. But the reason why it, it is 90% is because the vaccine's only targeting one COVID-19 virus, whereas the flu vaccine targets a very difficult uh, mutating influenza virus. The vaccine for COVID-19, is it working across all age groups? So far, the evidence says yes. The clinical trials for the two leading vaccines have shown that they work about the same in older adults as in younger people. You may have heard of uh, Russia's Putin, who didn't take uh, their Russian vaccine initially, you know, he was, you know, cause, and he said because it hasn't been tested on people over 65 years of age. Right. But now it has been tested on older adults and it's been cleared. 
So there's no problem. But the CDC said, said that they will continue to monitor the effectiveness of the vaccine in people 65 and older, and, and so will the pharmaceutical companies, because they can actually design the vaccine such that it can have a better response, in fact, in older adults, as they have been able to do with the flu vaccine. Huh. I didn't know that. Let's talk a bit about the practicalities. Does it hurt to have the vaccine? The shot will feel like an ordinary shot that you would get. But you may have heard that the Pfizer vaccine needs to be kept at negative 80 degrees. Right. So some people wonder whether it's going to feel really cold. But uh, this has been clarified by a lot of our public health officers in particular. I have a quote from Dr. Brent Roussen, who is Manitoba's chief public health officer. And he said that the vaccines are thawed before being administered. Yeah, because otherwise it would be a solid and as opposed to a liquid, which which is logical, but I think people just sort of get caught up and they, they don't think about it. That's right. I know some people who, who've had the vaccine. I have some doctor friends who are at the front lines and, and they tell me, um, you know, they didn't have any side effects. They weren't really feeling, you know, they felt a little bit under the weather, but there was nothing noticeable, no noticeable changes in their health when they took it. Now that's anecdotal and obviously it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily, it isn't necessarily the same across the entire population, but for the ones that I know about, they seem to be okay. Before you, if you are in line to get the vaccine, speak to your doctor about all the allergies you have and other side effects you've had perhaps in the past. And the best advice is to get that professional advice from your doctor. Do you have any information on how long the vaccine takes to work? So I do. So the way these work, these vaccines work, is that they trigger your body into producing antibodies that can fight the virus. And it takes a few weeks for your body to begin this production. So you won't get peak protection until you get the booster shot three or four weeks after the first shot. But even after the first two weeks, you start getting some immunity or some effectiveness against the virus. And the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines have both been proven to be about 50% effective after about two weeks. Right. So it's still possible to get COVID after your initial shot. It becomes less likely as your body starts producing the antibodies, is, is my understanding. That's right. And, you know, after you get the, the booster shot, you, it will become about 90% effective against the virus. And they, Teresa Tam, uh, Dr. Teresa Tam has said that if you miss your appointment or forget to go to your appointment, don't just skip it or start again. Rebook it and go and get your booster shot. You, you do need that. Okay. Now, are we still obliged to wear a mask even if we've had the inoculation? Absolutely. You know, we got, you have to adhere by the provincial and the, our federal laws and maybe the city laws on wearing masks. And I think that they'll remain in place for a while because millions and millions of Canadians will still remain unprotected, probably until the fall. The, the fact is that right now they believe that even if you have been vaccinated, you could still theoretically carry and transmit the virus to others. So while they're hopeful that their transmission won't really happen, it's best to be safe for now and adhere to the legal requirements. We have time for one last question, and that is, what's your understanding on whether the vaccine is working on the variants that we keep hearing about, uh, for example, South Africa and the UK variants? So the good news is that the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, we've been told by the pharmaceutical companies that they are effective against the new variants, specifically the ones from Britain and South Africa. They are slightly less protective with the South African variant, but we have to watch out for more variants, I think, 
coming down the pipe. This virus will continue to mutate, so we can't rule out how the, the virus will evolve. And uh, I think one unfortunate event which has just come about in the last few days is that a study in South Africa recently showed that the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine may only provide minimal protection against the South African variant. So there's a little bit of design work and evolution that's happening right now to make sure that they, these vaccines do cover all the variants. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today and, and sharing uh, the information that you've gathered on this. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. Once again, I do want to say, tell everybody that this is uh, just information that I've educated myself from various sources, uh, the CDC and lots of doctors, but please do only take it for informational purposes only and do seek proper medical advice from your doctor. Fantastic. That was Adar Shah. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss anxiety and sex on The Tonic. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their Liquid Greens Chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. Valentine's Day isn't the only time to think about your heart. Over 2.4 million Canadians are affected by heart disease. Symptoms such as shortness of breath, chest pains, discomfort in your arms, back, neck, or jaw are not to be ignored. Seeking medical assistance is always the safest choice. It could save your life. Don't die of doubt. Don't hesitate. Follow your heart and call 911 at the first sign of heart attack or stroke. Medtronic Canada is committed to alleviating pain, restoring health, and extending life for patients with heart disease. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Carlisle Jansen is a sex therapist and founder of Good For Her, Toronto's premier sexuality store and workshop center. She's also the author of two books, including Sex Yourself, and you can find her educational videos and TED Talk at carlislejansen.com, and she can be contacted at carlisle at goodforher.com. Welcome back to the show. How are you? Hi, I'm well, thank you. Always a pleasure to be here. Today, we are going to talk about the nexus of anxiety and sex, which sounds scary in and of itself. It's, it's, it's bringing back memories to me. Is it common for people to be anxious about sex? Yes. I mean, certainly, you know, they don't make very good bedfellows, anxiety and sex together, but they're very commonly paired up together. And it's common partly because people who have anxiety in other aspects of life, which is relatively common, then experience it around sex as well. I would imagine it's harder if you're sort of, quote unquote, out on the market. Like those anxieties probably, if you have a partner you've been with for a while who understands you and maybe appreciates that you have general anxiety, you know, you, they're probably more sort of helpful or supportive, but it would be tough if you were single, I would think. For sure. I mean, it can show up as tough in different aspects of life. Like for long-term partners, sometimes it's challenging because the partner gets tired of it yeah, I guess. <laughs> um, and wants you to just get over it. Whereas with new partnerships, and then, you know, add COVID on top of all of it, if you have anxiety about getting sick and meeting new people and, you know, when do I feel okay to bring this person into my bubble. 
Do I trust that they're not seeing other people and that they're not being exposed to COVID or having reckless behavior? But certainly just meeting people can be anxiety provoking. Talking about your anxiety can be anxiety provoking. Knowing how anxiety shows up in your sex life with challenges with erections, problems with orgasm, being able to relax and enjoy pleasure. All of these things are hard to then feel like you can bring up with a new partner because, of course, we fear other people's judgment of us and we fear that they're going to reject us based on that. So for people who don't understand how anxiety manifests, what is the stress response in in terms of sexual relationships? So what happens is when we're having sex, we're supposed to be in what's called sort of the rest and digest mode, right? And so we're supposed to be relaxed and everything flows and everything's good. And the blood goes to all the areas they need to go, all our erogenous zones, and they go to the surface of the skin because that's where we feel so much. That's why when somebody touches you, when you're aroused, it feels so electric. The problem is that if we have even just a thought, because our bodies respond to thoughts as though they're actually happening. So you might have a thought, what if I lose my erection? What if I don't orgasm? What if I don't taste good? What if my partner doesn't find me attractive? Even just one little thought takes us into fight or flight response. And our fight or flight response is our ancient brain that says, basically, there's a bear chasing you. So if you potentially have a penis, is this a good time if you're running away from a bear to have an erection? Yes. Likely not. It would <laughs> right? be a, and it would be a strange response and it might shock the bear, right? <laughs> right? So your body will either ejaculate to get rid of the erection or will just go soft. And so the same thing happens if you have a vulva. The body flows out of that area. So that if you have a thought about what if I lose my erection, what if I can't orgasm, the very thing you fear is going to happen because your fight or flight response drains the blood out of that area, basically so it can run away from the bear. But right. in this instance, there's no bear, but but that's what's happening to you. You know, if you have one of those minds that races or gets distracted sure. or dwells, you know, it can come up in, at the worst possible time, right? You're trying to be romantic and, and then on the back of your mind, you're thinking about work or whatever it is that's making you anxious. It, it's not right. conducive to a good encounter, let's call it, right? Yeah, for sure. It totally gets in the way. And, you know, people try different things. They try Viagra. They say, like, you know, lie back and think of England, (laughs) traditional one. You know, other people said to me, think of garbage. You know, that's actually not, not necessarily helpful. But, you know, what it is, is the first thing to do is to notice that you're being distracted by this. But the other things that happen, too, is that your blood vessels are constricted. So that means that the blood doesn't flow in where it's supposed to go. You're not able to concentrate on what you're doing. You're not able to feel what you're doing and feel what your partner's doing to you because you're so focused on work or whether you're doing it right. Then your partner's going to notice this. They notice, wow, you know, you're not really present. You're not really here. Are you interested in having sex? Do you find me attractive? What's going on? And You know, most of us want to have sex with partners who are into it. So that then further compounds the anxiety because then we're like, oh, no, I'm not present. My partner can tell. Now what do I do? It just becomes a downward spiral. And then unfortunately what happens is that we fear having sex. We're afraid of this response happening. So we just avoid it. We do everything in our power to avoid it. Or we just grin and bear it and we go through it, which isn't pleasurable for anybody involved. And then we feel like we maybe we have a low libido. And the analogy that I use is if you go to a restaurant where you don't like the food, are you excited about going back to that restaurant? 
Right. No. Nope. So if you don't have a good experience when you have sex and it leaves you feeling frustrated or not pleasured or maybe an argument with your partner or another moment of tension with your partner, of course you're not going to have desire for sex because it just it leads to an uncomfortable situation on many levels. All right. Now that we've scared the hell out of everybody, let's let's (laughs) talk about some things that we can do to perhaps overcome anxieties that we're experiencing. What would you recommend? So one of the things that I really find helpful is the five, four, three, two, one exercise before you start or when you get in the middle of something. So five, four, three, two, one is our senses. And I find it really helpful for just bringing you in the moment because anxiety is fear of the future. It's the fear of what if my partner doesn't find me attractive and rejects me? What if I don't get an erection? What if I don't orgasm? What if we end up in a fight, right? Mm -hmm. So to take away from the future, you want to stay in the present. So five things that you see. I see the lamp, the door, the window, my partner, whatever. Four things that you physically feel. I feel my partner's touch on my arm. I feel the sweat on my brow. I feel my partner's legs against mine, right? Three things you hear. I hear your breathing. I hear my sound in my head. Two things that you smell or would like to smell and one thing that you taste or would like to taste. And it's a great way to just bring you into the moment. So talking about bringing you into the moment, I I sense you have a mindfulness bent in mind too, huh? So breathing is helpful and mindfulness is really helpful. And Lori Brato is a sex therapist and researcher out of Vancouver, and she wrote a book called Better Sex Through Mindfulness. And it is a really good book that outlines how to be mindful when it comes to sex and pleasure or any aspect of your life, really. And so mindfulness is just about bringing yourself back into the moment without judgment, Mm because most of us would go somewhere else at some point during sex. This is normal. So the key is, oh, whoops. I'm having sex. Bring yourself back to the moment. And so when you notice, oh, no, what if my partner doesn't like this, right? Come back to what do I feel right now? What do I experience right now? And if you need to check it out with a partner, you know what? I'm feeling anxious that you're not enjoying what's going on. I'm afraid that you don't like how I taste. I'm, a, I'm anxious that you don't want to have sex with me, right? Just check it out. And if you've talked to your partner ahead of time, they can reassure you and say, look, I'm so happy to be with you. I love pleasuring you. This is so great. Focus on my touch, right? So your partner can help you come back to the present. Mindfulness is hugely key for people of all sexes and genders to feel more, even if you don't orgasm, you'll feel more pleasure and to remain focused. And I know that, you know, your view is we should focus on the pleasure rather than sort of goals, right? Like having orgasm or or bringing orgasm to your partner, but just sort of, you know, I think this is part, an extension of of mindfulness, sort of be in the moment and experience those pleasures. And then, you know, things may go better than than you think they're going to go, right? Absolutely. And if you, if you take away that focus on performance or a goal and you focus just on what can I feel? How can I feel connected? What do I notice? What am I learning about myself? It doesn't matter whether you have an erection or not. It doesn't matter whether you orgasm or not, because the goal for most of us for sex, unless we're trying to procreate, is pleasure and connection. So that we can focus on, like, maybe, you know, intercourse isn't what we're going to do. We're going to focus on oral pleasure, even if you don't have a hard penis, even if it doesn't bring me to orgasm, you know, or maybe we go back to cuddling and then bring it back up again so that we can be 
enjoy each other in the moment, whatever that moment brings. Are we capable of learning how to sort of be more confident about experiencing our own pleasures? Is this a learning thing? Often it is. And sometimes it's about learning um, techniques. So often, you know, people say, what do you like? Well, I don't know. Okay, so there are workshops. So, for example, my store, Good For Her, we offer lots of workshops. There are great books. There are great videos. You can learn to learn about techniques for your own pleasure, techniques for your partner's pleasure. If your partner has a different kind of body in particular than yours is, and you're like, what do I do with this? You know, learning some techniques can totally bring up your confidence and help you to know, look, I'm going to try these things and let's see which ones work. And to feel more confident and empowered in what you do can totally shift it and help with the anxiety as well. And I would add, you know, if you're confident in other aspects of your life, that could obviously trickle over into your sexual relationship. So for example, if you're feeling fitter, if you're getting better rest, if you're in a good frame of mind, those things can help too, right? The collateral benefits of, of living a healthy lifestyle. For sure. A healthy lifestyle makes us feel better about our body. Feels, You know, we just, we just stand taller. We feel more confident, yeah. you know, and that also includes like not having a lot of alcohol, you know, that improves your full whole body healthiness yeah. as well as, you know, certainly having alcohol before you have sex can, can definitely get in the way. So, you know, focusing on what you feel good about in other aspects of your life can definitely spill over into feeling more confident in your relationship, in your sexual confidence and in your pleasure. Well, that's great advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Always a pleasure. You're going to be back next month. What do you want to talk about? We are going to talk about sex and porn. Wow. Is it healthy for you? I can hardly wait. That was Carlisle Jansen. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss tolerating uncertainty on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Hi, I'm Jamie Buston. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show and podcast, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's a health and wellness publication distributed with the Globe and Mail to each and every home subscriber in Toronto west of Victoria Park. And it can be found free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA. You can learn more about Tonic Magazine at tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, check out the new look of Tonic Magazine. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Tracy Sagrati has an eclectic background in molecular biology, psychology, and nursing. She practices psychotherapy and yoga therapy and has over 20 years of experience in leading classes, workshops, and events. She believes that the tools of mindfulness pave the way for a deeply meaningful life at any stage. And you can find her at sograttiyoga.com, Sograti Yoga on Facebook, or at Tracy Sograti on Instagram. Welcome back to the show, my friend. How are things? Oh, things are great. Thank you so much for having me, Jamie. I'm always happy to uh, have the chance to chat with you. Today, we're going to talk about something uh, I'm not so sure, which kind of fits into the theme. (laughs) We're we're talking about intolerance of uncertainty. Yeah. Yeah. So what is that? 
Yeah, so there's a couple of different ways to look at it. I mean, on one hand, from a psychological perspective, there's a whole theory around intolerance of uncertainty and the way that it predicts anxiety. So I'm going to go into that a little bit today. Mm -hmm. But the other thing it is, is really is it's an attitude that can sort of develop over time. And, um, and some people would even say it's like a dispositional characteristic. I think it is. Yeah. Do you? Yeah. Cause well, it's both. I think it's nature and nurture. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I tend to be sort of wary, bordering on paranoid and, and worry about what I can't control. And yeah. then, you know, working as a litigator for 20 years, yeah. you, are, you are trained in risk management and helping other people deal with their uncertainty. So like uncertainty, yeah. you tend to approach it in a certain way, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, it's so funny you say that because when I was writing when I was writing out the notes to send to you for our interview, I yeah. was thinking, wow, I feel like I'm just writing a letter to Jamie about yep. him. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Every time you come on this show, it's essentially a letter to me. But yeah, that's right? A, yeah, it's right? true. I know. So yeah, so you're right. It's it's a bit of nature and nurture. And, and what can happen is there's sort of a negative belief about uncertainty, mm-hmm. which then creates this cycle that affects your thoughts, your feelings, and your behavior, right? So there's environment, thoughts, feelings, and behavior. And whenever there's an input into sort of any one of those things, then everything else gets affected. And, you know, for those who are listening, it can be a bit like, you know, uncertainty or or sometimes I call it not knowing Mm -hmm. or doubt are seen as really awful, something that has to be avoided at all costs. It could be even seen as totally unfair. And then in conjunction with that, what happens, and this is, this can be unconscious, is people can start to think that worrying is actually a positive thing because it's the way that you can predict outcome, right? right? So the way that you can control for uncertainty is by kind of jacking up your worrying all the time. There's a difference between ruminating on stuff you can't control mm-hmm. or actively sort of changing reality to so that you can control it, right? I mean, yeah. and I'm, I'm, I'm not being facetious. I mean, there are things that you can do to obtain more control over your life. There's a trade-off, of course, right? Yeah. So, but I agree with you. Worrying is completely manifestly unhelpful. So. Yeah, yeah. But I love you just actually said a few different important things, and I want to tease it out for our listeners. So ruminating tends to be past-oriented, True. right? So that's kind of a way that you can sort of assess for yourself, whereas worrying tends to be future-oriented. If you kind of look at, psychologically speaking, what happens when we're ruminating, it tends to move us towards depression. Yep. And when we're worrying, it tends to move us towards anxiety. Just just if you sort of look at like a maladaptive process that might happen. Yep. You know, I think the other thing that's important to mention, you know, just in teasing this out for people too, is just the behaviors that yeah. come with intolerance. So how does it manifest when, when we do this? Well, Okay, so if you're intolerant of uncertainty, you might tend to react really strongly or worry excessively, as I said, and then plan, you know, really anally, retentively in order to prevent uncertainty, Mm -hmm. right? It, It might look like you need to be in control of every single detail. From a thought perspective, you might have thoughts running through your head like, I can't cope not knowing. I need, for example, like in referring to COVID times, I just need to know an exact date or time when I'm going to get a vaccine, when my kids are going to go back to school, when I'm going to go back to work so mm-hmm. that I know what to expect. Right. And, and some people even gravitate towards you know, preferring the certainty of a bad result than the uncertainty of not knowing, right? Exactly. And that, that's kind of the mind-blowing piece right there yeah. is that when there's that high on intolerance of uncertainty, a person will actually prefer something bad to happen just 
so that they can know. And they can get it off their plate, right? Yeah. Because that presumes that these issues that we're thinking about are in isolation when in fact our lives are so complicated that we're often thinking about many different things, right? Exactly. Well, and it just never ends, right? right? As long as you're alive and, and, you know, fingers crossed that goes on for a long period of time, yep. that uncertainty is not going to end. And from an interpersonal perspective, like where it can really go awry too in terms of your relationships is you might ask for a lot of reassurance from friends or family members and, you know, that can get annoying for people. Mm-hmm. You might end up making really long and detailed lists Mm. and have those everywhere. And that can sort of intensify pressure, like internal pressure. It can look like obsessive compulsive behaviors, so like double, triple checking things. But, and Jamie, I say the next point directed Mm. to you, it can also look like wanting to control things or have them be done to like a certain perfect standard, right? And then so maybe having difficulty delegating them. Yeah, I I mean, (laughs) that comes with experience, right? Like there's certain people you can trust with delegating. And then there's people that you know, or they've let you down. So, uh, sorry, am I speaking from personal experience? I don't know. Who could say? But, you know, delegation is an art form. It really is. It's built on relationships. So I I understand where you're coming from, but I actually Uh think that's a little bit different. Well, it's, you know what, I think when I hear you unpack it in the way that you're unpacking it, I agree. Like I would actually retract a bit and say, yeah, it is built on relationships. And if there could be a post-secondary course in it, I think it would be really helpful for everyone and there's a healthy balance there's of course a healthy balance. so let's let's agree on that that there needs to be a healthy balance hey i'm um, growing as a person i'm letting go of my fear of delegation i rely on other people all the time yeah yeah i mean i have it too i it's something that i've really struggled with over time as well and you know with every year that passes and i guess with more responsibilities you kind of learn to tolerate letting go a little bit mm-hmm. but it is you're right it is about figuring out who you can trust and who you can rely on and that's a discernment skill We can talk about that another time. Mm -hmm. You know, the other thing that happens is we start to avoid things. So there's avoidance of places, people, conversations, anything that might kind of trigger that uncertainty. We have fear of the unknown. Uh, People start turtling, right? You know, your your universe just gets smaller because it's what you can control, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's exactly it. And and the problem with this is that, you know, as we said earlier, you're never going to get rid of uncertainty. You know, as long as you uh, live, you're going to have uncertainty. And then if you don't learn to tolerate it, which we're sort of, that's where we're going today, is you'll just use more avoidance and more distraction. And then you'll just get greater intolerance of uncertainty and then more anxiety. And it just creates this brutal negative feedback cycle. Yeah, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Yeah. If you, you get a couple of negative results from the unknown, and then all of a sudden it becomes very real to you and your ability to cope with it. Yep. Yeah, well, it becomes almost like a psychological allergy. Yep. That's how I think of it. I agree. So let's, now that we've terrified everybody, let's... Yeah. let's <laughs> what can we do about let, it? Yeah, exactly. Let's, let's hear it. Okay, so the goal, you have to think about this in a goal-oriented way, which can be annoying to some people, but that's what you have to do. Um, the first is that you have to set the goal to increase your tolerance of uncertainty. And in all cases, that means exposure, 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 exposure. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, just like anything else, you can't expect to pick up a skill in the middle of the stressful situation, right? So you can't expect to expose yourself to high uncertainty if you have trouble tolerating it and expect that you're going to pick up the skill in that moment. You have to scaffold your learning through other practices before you go into the exposure. Does this make sense? Yeah, no baptism of fire. It's not, a, not exactly. an effective way of coping. Yes, it just, it just doesn't work. Um, well, maybe it would for a highly resilient person, but for most people, no, it doesn't work. So there are three things that you have to do. It's practice acceptance, grow your awareness, and learn how to be with something without trying to change it. 
And you do this through a meditation practice. What I generally recommend uh, for people who are high in anxiety, who are using mindfulness as a strategy to cope, is to have three sessions in the beginning where they're sitting with themselves during the day. So morning, midday, evening, five minutes, right? Everyone can do five minutes. Some mm-hmm. people sit on the toilet for five minutes. No comment. And, <laughs> and so the first session is about learning to accept. Accept you sit down and you accept the way that you're breathing. You accept the way it feels to be in your body, whatever is there, whether it's pain, pleasure, and you start to hold those pieces of yourself. And then with open awareness, you monitor what you're thinking and you just allow yourself to relax your resistance to it. And you just do that every day. And that will scaffold the learning there. The next is the awareness practice, right? So the second practice in the day is you would sit down and just become aware of everything that you can possibly sense. Right? So what you can see when you're sitting, what you can hear, what you can sense on your skin, how the tongue feels against the roof of the mouth, etc. And then the third practice is to actually bring something to mind that's a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit pokey, and practice being with it without kind of getting fused to it, right? So if you're feeling really angry at someone, it's just to kind of bring that to mind, feel the anger in your body, and practice with it without judging it you know just being really gentle with yourself and those three really short practices over time will allow you then to expose yourself to uncertainty i think that's great advice you know my personal journey towards embracing the unknown Mm -hmm. is i wouldn't call it rumination but i was looking backwards to sort of examine those times where Mm -hmm. i didn't accept it and i Mm -hmm. tried to force change or affect change when it wasn't there. And then when you start looking at the negative results of trying to control the situation, you know, was it Einstein who said, you know, insanity is is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a a different result? Well, you know, if if you're coping the same way by trying to control every aspect of whatever it is you're you're trying to deal with and it ain't working, well, you got to try something else. And that's sort of where I've come to at my age is it wasn't working for me. Controlling everything was not happening, and it was just, I was just making myself crazy. So I don't do it anymore. Well, can I just say, though, Jamie, I mean, this is what's beautiful. Like what you just said there, you, you essentially put yourself unknowingly through cognitive behavioral therapy. You know, that whole act of doing a productive review where you're looking at what is the situation, what did you do, and what was the result? I mean, that's cognitive behavioral therapy right there. Well, there you made a change based on the evidence. And I didn't even have to pay anybody for it. All good. Brilliant. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on the show. Always a pleasure. Will you come back next month? 100%. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, George Barakat, Adarsh Shah, Carl L. Jansen, and Tracy Sagrati. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can follow us at The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. The January-February issue is now available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to every home subscriber in Toronto west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie@tonictoronto.com. Next week on the show, we'll discuss the importance of taking care of your heart, the difference between laxatives and fiber for your digestive health, and calming yourself for a good night's sleep. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.